Um, all right, well, let me pray for us, and then we'll open God's word together. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is to come before God's people and to open your word together. We are a people who are very privileged to know you, to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to have your word uh, to guide us and to lead us and to reveal you to us. So, Father, may we uh, have eager ears to listen to what this text has to say to us. May we have eager hearts to be shaped uh, by what you would have us see in this passage. Most of all, may we have open eyes to behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ in this text. And may you humble us and shape our hearts and strengthen our minds as we study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but the end of the year is nigh upon us. We are in December, and a very happy national day to all of you here in the UAE. It's uh, fun to celebrate a holiday here, and we have more holidays coming up, don't we? We are starting into the Christmas season. Our sister was just talking about the, the Christmas series that's coming as uh, some prophecies from Isaiah will be studied, and that's exciting. But for many of us, December is a month that is different from other months, isn't it? As we uh, get ready for Christmas and we start to celebrate Christmas, uh, some of us have special Christmas music that we listen to. We have special Christmas foods that we eat. There will be a time of social gatherings and parties and uh, family visits in some cases. Uh, at church, we tend to remind ourselves of, of the rich truths of Christ's birth. We open up passages like the beginnings of the Gospels and the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke that talk about uh, angels appearing to Mary and the birth of Christ and the shepherds and the wise men and, and you know, glory, hallelujah, um, and the donkey and the inn and the baby and all those things. Uh, it's an exciting time of year. And I want to kind of kick that off, and I do want to talk about the birth of Christ this morning, but I want to look at it from a little bit different angle, maybe from a passage that you would not expect. And so please open in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. See the text on the screen there, the book of Philippians. We want to look kind of at the middle of this letter. This is an, an epistle uh, written by the Apostle Paul to one of his churches, the church in Philippi. And this is, this is a pretty good church. Sometimes in Paul's letters, we have, you know, sometimes he seems kind of angry. Sometimes he's really concerned about the churches he's writing to. And so you have this tone of rebuke, the tone of correction. But we don't have too much of that in Philippians. In Philippians, uh, there's a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of, uh, of praise, of joy, of celebration of Christ, celebration of the work of Christ, this this is a church that, genuinely, that, that generally seems to be going about things in the right way. It's a pretty good church that this book is being written to. So as Paul starts the letter of, to the Philippians, his focus is on the gospel. He talks about the priority of the gospel in the first chapter in 112 through 26. He comes down to 127, sort of after his introduction to the book, 127. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What a beautiful verse that is, calling the church, calling believers to look at the gospel and live in a way that accords with the gospel. And coming into chapter two, that kind of gospel focus, that kind of gospel-centered conduct uh, begins to be fleshed out for us. What would it look like for us to really live in that way? What would it look like for us to be people who let our, our lives be worthy of the gospel? He's going to tell us 
as we come into chapter 2. And so, uh, so what we see in chapter 2 is that that gospel focus, being a gospel-centered church, means that we have to be a unified church. The theme of chapter 2 is the unity that the church has in the gospel. Uh, and it's a little bit of a hint, not, not a full explanation, but there's maybe a little bit of a hint that there might be some rumblings in Philippi. There might be some little taste of disunity that's happening in the church there. We see a little bit more about that in chapter 4. And it doesn't seem like it's a major problem. Paul's not confronting it head on, but he does seem to be saying, hey, watch out for this. There's a little bit of a danger here. This church is doing well, but watch out for the threat of disunity that could really derail you as a church. And what an important subject for a new church like this to be studying, a church just on the cusp of celebrating its first anniversary, as you are, right? And thinking about plans for the future and thinking about moving into a new building, as we were just hearing about. Praise the Lord for that. Um, but what's a threat to that? What could derail that? Well, it's this threat of disunity. And so Paul is calling the church to be a unified church. And that's really the context that we have as we come into Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and let's read this text. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Wow. See, maybe you've read that text before, and maybe you've not thought of it in those terms, but this is a, a great Christmas text, isn't it? It's a great Christmas text because it takes us inside the incarnation, inside the birth of Christ, and it shows us what God was thinking. It shows us the, the motivation, what was going on in the heart of God before the incarnation and after the incarnation. It points us to the reality of what God experienced as he came to earth as a man. The first thing that we can see about this text is that it's a text that's really concerned about the mind. You might not have noticed it as we, as we jumped in to begin reading, but look at the first words again in, in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourself. Some translations might say attitude, have this attitude, but it, the idea is really the idea of mind, your brain. What, what are you thinking? This is a text concerned with your thinking. And so we see, first of all, that Christianity, it's not just a bunch of stuff that you do. Right? It's, not, it's not an ethic first and foremost. It's not about just a bunch of rules for how you're going to live your life. And maybe you've heard some people say things like, you know, I don't care about all that doctrine. I don't care about all that theology. I just want to love Jesus. I just want to live for Jesus. And see, if someone says that, they haven't really absorbed the message of the Bible, which is a method about, yes, living for Jesus, yes, loving Jesus, but doing so in a way that's informed by your thinking, informed by a mind that is shaped by the word of God. And so he says, this is about your mind. Have this mind among yourselves. And notice that this is not an individualized text. It's not saying all of you go to your separate little chambers and, and get your book and figure out, you know, figure out what you need to know by yourself. 
but it's talking about your corporate mind, how you think together as a church, you, you plural, yourselves plural, have this mind together as a church. That's what it's saying. How should the body of Christ, how should Grace Church of Abu Dhabi be thinking together? That's what this text is challenging us to ponder. And Paul's answer here, the way that, that Paul is seeking to shape our mind is he's seeking to show us Jesus. See, our, our Christology, our, our doctrine of Jesus, that's what Christology is, our Christology needs to be right if our church is going to be healthy. And that's where Christmas comes in, right? Where as we think about Christmas time, the Christology that you need to have to have a healthy church focuses, first of all, on Christ's incarnation, that event that we celebrate at Christmas. So Christmas is an opportunity for us to develop the kind of Christology that's going to lead to a faithful ministry, going to lead to lives that are glorifying to God. So let's let Paul start off our Christmas season by giving us, and what we're going to see in this text is two portraits of Jesus, two portraits of Jesus that are going to shape our minds, drive our behavior, and empower our mission here this Christmas season. First of all, the first portrait of Jesus that I want you to see is, is this. Number one, see the humble Christ and give. If you're a note taker, write that down. Number one, see the humble Christ and give. And as we get into that, before we, we really explain that, we need to build from this text a theology of the incarnation. You know what I mean when I say incarnation? The word incarnation comes from incarnate. God became incarnate as a man. It's referring to the fact that God appeared as a man. God became a man. That's the act of the incarnation. What happened when Jesus was born, that's the incarnation. So let's figure out our theology of the incarnation. First of all, we can see that Jesus was the pre-existent God. Look at verse 6, 2-6. It says, though he was in the form of God. This is referring to a time before Jesus was ever born in the world. There's an idea that Jesus didn't come into existence for the first time uh, in that manger there in Bethlehem, right? Before that ever happened, before he was ever conceived in Mary's womb, Jesus pre-existed. He existed before that, and 2.6 describes that state. He existed in the form of God. Now, sometimes we might use that word form to describe something that looks like something, but isn't actually that thing. I don't know if you've ever gone into a restaurant and, and as you walk in the restaurant, you see that display case with all the desserts that you can order after your meal. And sometimes those are real desserts, but other times they're like rubber desserts. Have you ever seen that? It's like a plastic dessert. It looks like this beautiful piece of cheesecake, but it's actually made of plastic. It's in the form of the dessert, but it's not a dessert. You don't want to eat that one. Okay, but this is not that, it's not a form in that sense. It's not an imitation of God, but, but the Greek concept of form means something that, that has the actual essence of that thing, something that in every way looks like the thing because it is that thing. All of the internal characteristics belong to the thing being described. And so Jesus was in the form of God. It means he was God. And so you say, well, why does Paul say it in this complicated way? If he wants to say that Jesus is God, why doesn't he just say Jesus is God? But see, actually, this is the clearest possible way that, that, that Paul could say that Jesus in every way was God himself. See, if he just said Jesus is God, that could be taken in different ways. People could say, okay, well, he's, he's a God. He, he's a lesser God. He's, he's kind of like God, but he's not as powerful as God the Father. 
Or people could say, okay, he, he's some kind of type of God. He, he, there's many gods and Jesus is one of them. But when he says, no, he was in the form of God, it's both affirming monotheism, that there's only one God, but also affirming that Jesus, this Jesus participated in that fully and completely and totally. So it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful affirmation of the fact that this Jesus is God. In John 17, 5, Jesus is praying and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's similar to this verse. It's picturing God the Father and God the Son, and as we know, God the Holy Spirit also, sharing an identical glory for, for eternity before the world was ever created. They were together. They shared the same form. They shared the same essence. They shared the same glory. And so back in Philippians 2 and verse 6, he, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had equality with God in every way. He was equal to God because he was God. That's where Jesus came from. Before the manger, before Bethlehem, before the donkeys, before the sheep, that's where Jesus was. He was God. He was in the form of God. What happened then? If we skip ahead a little bit, we see that Jesus became incarnate. He became incarnate, verse 7, being born in the likeness of man. On that Christmas day, that first Christmas, a baby was born in Bethlehem. And that baby who was born to Mary in Bethlehem, this baby was the God that, that, that it's been describing. This baby was the one who was in the form of God. When it says he's in the likeness of man, the idea is that from the moment he was conceived, he was really, truly, fully a man. The word likeness means an exact duplicate of the original. He wasn't kind of a man. He wasn't God in a human suit. Uh, with apologies to our friend, he wasn't like Superman in the sense that, you know, Superman, we have Clark Kent, and he's like this mild-mannered reporter guy, but like he's not really that guy. He's really Superman. He's really more powerful than that. But Jesus really was what he appeared to be. He really was a, a man. As Hebrews 4.15 says, he was like us in all respects. He was tempted like us in all respects. He had the same frailties. He, he became thirsty. He became hungry. He became tired. He was a real man in every way. And what this passage does not say the passage doesn't say anywhere, and Scripture doesn't say anywhere, that in becoming a man, he became less God or he in some way gave up his, his identity as God. He gave up his existence as God. It doesn't say that. God is still God. He didn't give up his godness. He didn't give up his divine nature or his power, but he added something to it. That's the idea. He's adding this human form and all the unique features and the unique limitations that come along with being human. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, that is in Christ, in the man Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God became man, he was man, and he was God at the same time. And in this teaching about the two natures of Christ, Christ had two natures. The man Jesus Christ was both man and he was God. Christianity is teaching something that no other religion teaches, that no other religion will accept. The body is not lesser, the body is not dirty, the body is not evil, but God became a man. God took on humanness. He became one of us. He was like you and me. So in a nutshell, that's our theology of the incarnation. The eternal preexistent God added humanness to his divinity. 
Jesus Christ is very God and he is very man. And uh, we got a little theological there, but that's the foundation for what we need to see about how we then are to live. Because there's so many implications of God becoming man, but the one that Paul is focused on in this text and the one that he wants us to see and wants us to focus on is the humility of Christ, the humility of Christ. In verse six, when it says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's picturing his divine status, his divine privileges, which he possessed and saying, there's two ways Jesus could have gone with that. Being God, having all the glory of God, having all the attributes of God, there's two things that could have happened from there. On the first hand, he could have grasped that. He could have hung on tightly to his divine privileges. You think of uh, the character Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. He's got his ring and he says, this is, this is my precious. You know, it's mine. It belongs to me. He treasures that thing. He clings to it. He says, this is mine. Christ could have treasured his, his divine status, his divine privilege. He could have clung to it and used it for his own good, used it for his own benefit. That was his right. He, could, he didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to leave heaven and come to earth as a man. It was his right to be there in heaven, to be God in heaven, not to ever change that. He could have clung to that and used it for himself. But see, the other option, the option that Jesus actually chose was not to grasp that, not to hold on to it. Instead of clinging tightly to what was his by right, he could have opened his hands and been willing, uh, willing to use it for others. Seeing all that he possessed, all the, all the status that he had, not as something to be used for himself as for his own benefit, but to be used to serve others through suffering. We know what Jesus chose. He chose the second one, right? He did not take his equality with God and grasp onto it, but he opened it up. He, he let go of it. He didn't give up what he had as God, but he used what he had as God unselfishly. He didn't use it for his own good. He used it for his own harm. He used it for his own disadvantage. It's like if you picture someone who lives in a large mansion, picture this large mansion, and here's this rich person that lives in the large mansion. And then they see across the street, there's a refugee camp. And here's 10 refugee families that are living in these horrible, impoverished conditions across the street. And the rich person says, well, I have room in my mansion. I'm going to let these 10 families come inside and live with me. See, that person still has the same things he already had. He hasn't lost his mansion. He still, he still lives there. He still owns his home, but he's used that mansion not only to serve him, he's used it to serve others. And that's the idea. Christ didn't lose anything, but he used what he had for the good of others. And in this, think of the comparison with Adam. Adam, our first father. Adam, of course, was, was not God. Adam wasn't in the form of God, but he was created in the image of God. Adam was given the noble task of representing God. But what did Adam do? See, Adam had, had been given this position and he took that position and he grasped for more. Adam tried to become like God. The temptation was given to him. You could be like God. And he said, I want that. I'm gonna grasp for that. I'm, I'm going to aspire to something more than what I have here. That's what Adam did. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, did what the first Adam could not do and would not do. Adam grasped, Adam in his humanity grasped for deity but Jesus already had his deity and he entered into humanity. That's what it means when it says in verse seven, he emptied himself. 
It's not saying he emptied himself of his divine nature. It's not saying he emptied himself of selected attributes of God. If he didn't any longer have the attributes of God, he would no longer be God. But that's not the point. It doesn't, it's not saying here's what he emptied himself of. But notice verse 7. It says, but emptied himself. But there's a contrast here. On the one hand, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't use his godness for himself. But on the other hand, he emptied himself. What does that mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, it tells us if you keep reading verse seven, he emptied himself. What does that mean? By taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by what he added to himself. He gave up his rights by what he gained. He forsook his right not to be a servant and instead became a man. And at that, the humblest of men, the poorest of men, a servant. Now it says servant, but the word here is really slave. Paul is writing to former pagans. They know what a slave is. They know that, that maybe, maybe some of them were slaves. A slave is someone who is completely deprived of rights. A slave is one who has nothing, who has no say over their life, who has no, no authority over their person, who has no power, who has no independence. That's what a slave is. Jesus didn't exchange the form of God for the form of a slave, but he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. It's an incredible thing to think about. His divine glory wasn't lost, but it was veiled because he came into the world as a slave. And here's the one in Jesus that had all the majesty of deity. Jesus could do everything that God could do. He had all the functions of deity. He had all the privileges of deity. He was adored by his father. He was worshiped by the angels. He was invulnerable to to pain. He was never frustrated. He was never embarrassed. He was never hungry or thirsty or uncomfortable. His, His supremacy was total. In God, Jesus was perfectly complete. He was perfectly blessed. This is the eternal status of God as he exists in himself. He had always been in this state. There was no reason for him to ever have anything but that state. He never had to change his position, but he did. He changed that status. He became a slave. The creator God didn't just become a person. He became a non-person, one who had no rights, one who allowed himself to be hungry, to be tired, to be persecuted, to be mocked, to be beaten, and to be crucified. And notice how clearly this text shows that this was Jesus' choice. This was not something that was done to him, but this is something that he entered into voluntarily. It says that this is what Christ did. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God. I think we grasp. He emptied himself by him taking the form of a servant Um, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is what Jesus did all along. This is his voluntary choice. As a contrast, think about the story of Samson in the book of Judges. Samson was a powerful guy in human terms, one who had great glory. Remember, he was supernaturally empowered by God to be the leader of the Israelites. And he had this, this supernatural, superhuman strength. And he would tear lions into pieces and, and battle you know, myriads of of enemy soldiers and deliver his people from the enemies. And and he accomplished these incredible things uh, with his strength. And so Samson became powerful and he became a leader and he he had glory and he had privilege, but Samson was humbled, wasn't he? Because Samson... Uh, you know, the story, Delilah was involved. He, he made all these unfortunate choices with women and he, he said things that he shouldn't have said and that led to him uh, being humiliated. He, he was Im- imprisoned by his enemies. His hair was cut. His strength was gone. His eyes were gouged out. 
And he was there put in, there in front of his enemies and mocked and scorned and laughed at. Uh, he was humbled. He was, he was high and he was brought low to nothing. But see, in the story of Samson, we see that's a result of his own sin. That's a result of his own poor choices. He, he got what he deserved in the sense that he had disobeyed God. He hadn't honored God and his humility had come about because of his own mistakes. But contrast that to Jesus, who also was higher than Samson would ever be and was brought lower than Samson would ever be brought, but it wasn't something that was done to him and it wasn't a result of his own sin, but it was something that he chose to do. He chose to do to deliver his people from sin. Going from the form of God to the form of a slave, it's a great lowering. It's an incredible condescension something that you and I could never imagine. We could never lose enough. We could never, uh, we could never reach so low a state to impossibly understand what he lost as he became a man, he became a servant. But it doesn't stop there because in verse eight, we have this idea of a continued progression. He, he was God, he, em- he emptied himself, he became a servant, but, but there's more. He didn't just become this poor Galilean man He didn't just live this life as a slave. There's more because he went still lower than that. Verse eight, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've been going lower and lower and lower. And here's the climax of Jesus humbling himself. It's death, but not just death, unjust death, not just unjust death, but the death of a criminal. The most shameful death of all, what, what, what the church father Origen called the utterly vile death of the cross. Crucifixion was the death of the lower class, the death of a slave, the death of a, a criminal. A decent person, even if they were sentenced to death, they weren't sentenced to be crucified. Crucifixion was saved for the most loathsome creatures of them all. According to Jewish tradition, anyone who was crucified died under the curse of God. So Jews say the Messiah couldn't die on a cross. Muslims say Jesus didn't die. And they both have a point. The point that they both have is saying, that seems impossible for that to be true. It seems impossible for the Savior to die in that way. It seems impossible for God to submit himself to something so low and so vile. Surely not that. Surely that's too low. That's too disgraceful. That's too humble. They have a point, but scripture says that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. That's the path that Jesus chose, the path of death, the path of crucifixion. And back to 2.5, what Paul wants us to see when he says, have this mind among yourselves, he wants us to see, do we have that mind or not? Do we have that heart or not? Do we have that spirit of Christ in us or do we not? Because our nature as humans is what our nature as humans is to cling so tightly to what we have, to love what we have, to love whatever we've acquired and to try to grasp for more than that. Kings try to conquer more territory. Business leaders try to grab more influence. All of us try to grab more possessions. We're we're grasping, we're clinging Jesus talked about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, they they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They love the place of honor. They love doing what they do to seem by men. They're grasping. Worldly leaders are grasping. 
Jesus talked about Gentile rulers. He said, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. They have this status of leaders, but they're grasping for more. But Jesus goes on to say, it shall not be so among you. This is Matthew 20. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man, that's him, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the difference. Jesus didn't come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve. He didn't grasp, he gave. See, we keep trying to gain possession and position that we can use for us, for our own name, for our own happiness, for our own comfort. We keep trying to grasp more possession, but Christ already possessed all. And he chose the path that led to incarnation and to death he gave. So this Christmas, as we, as we think about Christ and as we, and indeed for our whole lives as we live as Christians, will we have minds, in our minds, in our thinking, will, will we have that attitude of striving for more, of grasping for more, or will we have the mind of Christ, a mind that defaults to giving? That, that, that seeks to lower self instead of exalting self, that seeks to use all that one has for the benefit of others, not for myself. 1 John 2.6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We ought to walk like Christ. Christ, the one whose humanness was real. Jesus didn't have an escape clause on his mission to bear the sin of the world. He never cheats. He never, as a human man, he never breaks the rules. He never uses uh, you, you know, try, gets himself an exemption to, to what other humans suffer. He was hungry, right? But did he like make bread? No, he never did it. He was thirsty, but he never made himself water out of a rock. As he was betrayed and as he was beaten and as he was crucified, he could have called upon legions of angels to come and save him, but he didn't do it. He didn't use those privileges that God had because he was there to give. He was there to serve. He was there uh, to bear the pain, to bear the sorrow for the sake of his people. The power that, 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 that brought the world into existence, the power that stilled the storm, the power that raised the dead was never used to make his own human situation easier, was never used to make his life more comfortable. He faced Satan and defeated him as the God-man. Jesus is radically, steadfastly, beautifully committed to giving all he can for the good of others, not grasping what he had for his own good. Christmas, this time of the year we think so much about Christ. It's also a time of the year for us to diagnose attitudes in our own heart that are contrary to the spirit of Christ. In chapter two, verse two, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Would that that were true all the time in the church. But the reality is that our sinful hearts do the opposite. We go in the opposite direction so often. So he says in 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. See, that's where disunity creeps into the church on the back of selfish ambition, on the back of conceit, on the back of, of grasping. There's so many different forms of conceit, isn't there, of pride, at Christmas time, we might think about a pride of status, an idea of saying, look at what I have. Look at the presents that I got. Look at the, look at the gifts that I was able to give away. Look at the parties that I go to, the, the friends that I have. 
You know, I'm doing pretty good compared to those who don't have that. We might have a pride of religion. A thought that, hey, we're celebrating Christmas. We're doing the right thing here. Other people, they're not celebrating Christmas. They don't care about Jesus. We do, so like we're, we're doing pretty well, aren't we? Or maybe we even look at other Christians and say, see, our church celebrates Christmas in the right way, in the reverent way, whereas those people over there, they don't know what they're doing. They're not celebrating Christmas the right way. We have a pride of theology, don't we? Um, but then some of us maybe have the pride of self-pity, the, the more subtle pride that says, uh, I'm focusing on what I don't have this Christmas. I don't have family nearby. I don't have as many friends as other people do. I don't have the, the resources and the kinds of gifts to get or give that other people have. We focus on what I, I don't have. And I feel bad for myself. That's a kind of, a kind of pride too. Brothers and sisters, will you examine your hearts as you enter into this Christmas season? Will you have the, the wherewithal to look at this text and to look at Christ and to say, do I have that heart? Lord, show me where I don't have that heart. Or we have the, blind, the blindness to not do that, to not look at our hearts and come in here and sing Christmas carols and sing about the incarnation of Christ, all the while harboring attitudes that are totally foreign to the spirit of Christ. We need to be people who look to the manger and look beyond the manger to the cross and to see this call, as it says in 3 and 4, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have that mind among yourselves. Have Christ's mind among yourselves. Be people who see the humble Christ and then give Give without regard to yourselves. Give without regard to your status. Give like others are better than you. Give with full awareness of the incredible humility of our Savior. That's the first portrait of Christ. I promise you two, and the second will be shorter. But if I left you with just the first one, there would be a danger. And the danger would be the danger of seeing Jesus only as a human only as a man, only as a moral example, a kind of Gandhi on steroids, someone who did a lot of good things that we should emulate. There's a movie that came out a number of years ago, and I hope you haven't seen it. It's not a very good movie or edifying movie, so I'm not endorsing this movie, but the movie, the movie's called Talladega Nights. It's about a, a race car driver named Ricky Bobby, and there's this scene where the driver is saying a prayer before the meal with his family, and and he, he begins his prayer of thanksgiving by saying, I want, I want to pray to the, the little baby Jesus. And he says, you know, dear baby Jesus, and then proceeds to say thanks for the food and all that. And someone questions him and says, well, you don't pray to the baby Jesus. Jesus actually grew up and, and there's more Jesus than the baby. And he says, no, 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 I, I like the baby form better. I can relate to him more. He is, he's, he's better. He's more cuddly. I want to pray to the baby Jesus. And see, that's a danger and I think we have that danger to have a kind of view of Christ that I can pick which part of Jesus I like. I like the baby Jesus. I, I can control a baby. You know, I can, I can deal with the baby. Or maybe I like the human Jesus, the one that was so humble, that was so meek. I can deal with that Jesus. We, we pick which Jesus we want to deal with. But see, if our Christology is like that, if our Christology is focusing so much on picking and choosing parts of the human Jesus, that's a danger because we can and we should emulate the example of Christ's humility, but he's not given to us only as an ethical example. Because we need to remember where Jesus is now. Where is Jesus now? When we see where Jesus is now, 
We realize that he's not just an example of someone who acted humbly. He is the one that we need to be humble before. So the second portrait of Christ here is see the risen Lord. See the risen Lord and bow. The Bible story doesn't stop with the crucifixion. It goes on to say that after the crucifixion, after that event, the event where the sinless one died in the place of the sinful, the time where Christ took the punishment that we deserve so we could go free after that, he was buried. Three days later, he rose again. The apostle Peter preached, this Jesus God raised up. This is Acts 2.32. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And scripture says, then God exalted him to the highest place. And that's what it's talking about in Philippians 2.9, where it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore, as a result of this humility, as a result of the incarnation, because of the cross, God exalted him. Men mocked Christ in his humiliation, but God vindicated him in his exaltation. The Bible says God highly exalted him. The word highly exalted, it's a superlative. It means to, to hyper-exalt, to super-exalt, to, to exalt him, to raise him to the highest place over which there couldn't be any possible higher honor and higher exaltation. That's the place where Christ was brought to. Right now, Christ is in that place, that place of exaltation where he reigns as the Lord of glory. That's where Christ is now. And he's actually saying something incredible here. And I want you to see this. He's saying something incredible that we need to get some Old Testament context to see. So just flip with me for just a moment to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. I hope this is not one of your Isaiah prophecies that you're about to study because it would be a shame to, to spoil it. But, um, but look at Isaiah 45 for just a minute. Look at verse 18. Isaiah 45, 18. Uh, for thus says the Lord, he who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Notice the claim that's being made there. Someone is claiming to be the creator and the former of the whole earth, to be unique, to be the one of whom there is no other. And that person gives his name. That person is, it says, the Lord. But you know this about your Bibles, right? You know when you, your Bible translates the word Lord and it says all capital letters, Lord, like that, that that is not in the original, actually the word Lord, like, like master, one who I honor. When the Bible translates the word Lord like that, it's the name of God in Hebrew, the name Yahweh, God's personal and covenantal title, Yahweh. To the Jews, of course, Yahweh, that was the name that was above all names. That was the name that was so revered, so holy, so honored that they wouldn't even speak it. They wouldn't let that name of Yahweh cross their lips. And so they substituted other words. They would refer to God as the name, or they would use the word Lord as a way to avoid saying Yahweh because that name was so holy, it was so honored, it was so revered. And so even back in Old Testament times, they did this. And so they would substitute, if they were reading the text and the text said Yahweh, instead of reading aloud and saying Yahweh, they would say Lord, because they didn't want to pronounce God's name because God is so holy. He's so awesome. He's so revered. We shouldn't even speak his name was their tradition. So that's why our Bibles translate it that way. And they carry that tradition over and use the word Lord to translate that divine name. 
But, but, but look on. So, that, so that's what's going on here in Isaiah 45. And, and so when Paul, in, in Philippians 2, when Paul talks about the name which is above every name, well, to a person of that century, they, they know what name that is. They know what name is above every name, and it's the name of God, the name Yahweh. But then look further in Isaiah 45, because look what, look what Isaiah says, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return, and look at this, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So Yahweh, through the mouth of Isaiah, is making a prophecy here, a prophecy of something that's going to happen someday, and it's this prophecy that Paul is quoting from in Philippians 2, 10, and 11. Do you see the connection? Do you see that? Do you see they're, they're both talking about every knee should bow, every tongue should give allegiance? It, it, Paul is quoting from this prophecy about Yahweh. But notice that in the Old Testament context, we have Yahweh, the one God, the one of whom there is no other. And here's Paul in Philippians, and he's quoting this same prophecy and saying, this is about Jesus. There's a change here, right? It's, it's not about Yahweh anymore, it's about Jesus. Because what Paul is saying, that this man, Jesus Christ, the one who was humbled in the incarnation, is now exalted to that high status that he is given the name Yahweh, he's given the identity of Yahweh. He is the name above all names. He's the one that the Old Testament spoke about. He is the one God of whom there is no other. See, this is something that everyone except a Christian is gonna stumble over. Everyone's gonna say, no, that can't be true. That, that God of the Old Testament, Jesus can't be that God, but Paul's saying he is that God. Paul's saying the reality today, because Christ is exalted, because he reigns on high, that any definition of God that excludes Jesus defines a false God. If you, if you can't say Jesus is God, if you can't say Jesus is Lord, then you don't understand Jesus and you don't understand God. Because Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is a triune God we see in the New Testament. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Spirit. And so Jesus, the exalted Lord, is Yahweh. So when you think about the incarnation this Christmas, think about this. Think about the fact that, that Jesus, the one who was humbled, the baby Jesus, the pitiful man who was so badly beaten and humiliated and killed, that man's not sitting in a manger today. And he's not sitting in a tomb today. That means reigning over all creation today. He's sitting on a throne with all authority in heaven and on earth being given to him. He's majestic in glory. He's awesome in holiness. He's surrounded by angels. And if you could see him today, if you right now could see Christ where he is right now as we speak today, you wouldn't want to, to pinch his fat baby cheeks and you wouldn't want to run your fingers through his beautiful wavy hair. You would want to fall down on your face before the awesome God that he is. You would want to be like Isaiah when Isaiah saw a vision of Christ in Isaiah chapter 6 with all the cherubim surrounding him and fire coming out of his throne. And Isaiah fell on his face and said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. In the presence of a holy God, he was overcome by the knowledge that he was a sinful man who was not worthy to be in the presence of that God. That's true of us in relation to Christ. If you saw Christ, you would kneel, you would bow. In this prophecy that we have in Isaiah 45, that's repeated in Philippians 2, 
is that one day everyone's going to bow. Because one day everyone's going to see Christ as he truly is. They're going to see him in his authority when he comes back to judge. One day everyone's going to bow. Some in worshipful reverence and acknowledgement of his, uh, that he is the Savior. Others in forced acknowledgement as they await judgment. And right now we're in this period in between times where Christ already is sitting there on his throne. He already is given all this authority over the earth, but he is not yet revealed to all of creation as the king, as the judge, as the ruler. This delay is an example of God's patience. But the message for us, and I say this to you today with as much love and grace and seriousness as I can muster, the message to you is bow now. Bow now. Don't wait until you're forced to acknowledge the lordship of the one who's come back as your judge. Bow now to the God who made you, the God who loves you, who identifies with you, the one who died for you. He's the only one who's worthy of your worship. Come to see him. Come to know him. Come to bow before him this Christmas. Because of your sin, you need a savior. You cannot save yourself, and Jesus is that Savior, so bow now. You are going to bow before Jesus Christ, friends. Scripture is clear. One way to spend this life is to contend with him for supremacy, to fight, to try to advance yourself, to put yourself first, to claim false allegiance, to then have your head forced down on the day of judgment. The other way is to see this Christmas as an invitation into a relationship, invitation to see the beauty of the one who served you, an opportunity to love the one who loved you, the opportunity to be humble before the one who himself is a supreme demonstration of humility. Bow now. If you've never bowed before the authority of Jesus Christ, bow now. And if you're one who, who is a believer, who, who knows Christ, who, who follows him with your lives, are you living your life in that Christian posture of joyful bowing? Or are you succumbing to the ever-present temptation to lift your head and pridefully direct your life in the way that you want it to go? Friend, if you're doing that, you're not just ignoring Jesus' example. You're ignoring Jesus' position. You're living in the wrong time. You're acting like the baby is still a baby and he's not Lord of all. But now the humble king is sitting on his throne and he calls to us to bow now. So that's the message of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul is showing us Christ. He's giving us these two portraits of Christ. He's calling us to see the humble Christ and give and then to see the risen Lord and bow. Let's have a Christological mind this Christmas. Let's see Christ as he really is. And let's serve others and bow before him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, you call us to shine like lights in the world. You call us to make the glorious God known among all the earth. You have a concern for every tribe and every tongue and every knee, all the people of the world you want to know you. But Father, for your church to faithfully represent you, we need to be a people who don't just believe true things about Jesus, but act in the way that Jesus acted. May you give us hearts of humility. May you give us minds of worship. May we serve like Christ served. May we bow like Christ deserves. May we give you glory this Christmas season and for our whole lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.